Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-hosts. Warning you to Scaramanga. You get to hear my side of the conversation here, at least. If there is a conversation. If Mac answers. Okay. See you shortly. Bye. I think she said yes, dear. Yes. <laughs> uh, it sounded like, stop hassling me, I'm coming. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that was an endearing dear. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he got yes, deared. That might be the bumper for the show. Fantastic. <laughs> like literally sit down have one hand on headphones suddenly phone goes off it's like dad i'm coming come on all right welcome to polycast 319 i am michael lua as usual with me as always dan q saying hello to fall mega bears fan trying to get all my breakfast down before this starts <laughs> i know the feeling and our two guests today scar hey it's Scar mega and uh poly yeah poly uh, what the heck what do we call <laughs> This is how our returning guest loves to be introduced. What the heck? <laughs> I was going to say, turn cast regular, warning you too. What the heck? Greetings <laughs> <laughs> and solicitations, everyone. Thank you, Mackie, for that wonderful intro. I could not think of turn cast. My brain is like, Polly, 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 what? No, turn cast. No, no, no problem. Where's the caffeine? Find the caffeine. Polycast episode 319, what the heck? We might have the title, too. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> what the heck? Opened by Yes, dear. <laughs> uh, so two very important questions before we uh, get started. First, uh, Scar, why did you agree to come on the show? Um, well, I just want to meet other players. I really like multiplayer, so I'm doing that quite a bit. So it's good to talk some strategy and put some voices behind the faces, I guess, because I read some Mega Bears fan uh, website articles and stuff like that so okay two things you and a certain other person will be starting the mega bears fan club apparently shortly <laughs> uh, so... <laughs> yay more fans Woo! and uh second you mentioned multiplayer so yes when mackie mentioned that steve was a turncast regular player of course mackie and i are also regular players that's our cooperative multiplayer show you must be very familiar with the show and we'll be prepared for the quiz later excellent uh, of course yes so, Steve, Yo. you're back on the show. This is your fifth appearance. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm honored. You are now halfway to a non-existent t-shirt. How does that make you feel? <laughs> it, it, I, I, overwhelmed. <laughs> I just want to say thank you to my wife, my children, my two cats. It's been a wonderful experience. Thank you to CBS. Yes, we have corporate sponsorship, finally. It only took 12 years. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. I will be sending them an invoice shortly for all of our expenses. <laughs> That's right, a polycast so announcement. We wish. We're going to be on CBS. <laughs> Big brother. Tune in Sunday nights. Now streaming on CBS All Access. <laughs> oh, what, for Star Trek Discovery? Yep, yep, we're the lead into Star Trek Discovery. You know, we need to help their ratings. We're going to make a cameo appearance. Captain Picard's going to be listening to us in the background in his new series. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a great work. He will be listening to the great work that is polycast. Exactly. <laughs> The 
And we, of course, appreciate all of our listeners, particularly those who are able to take the time and engage in some conversation with us. Speaking of engaging in conversation. Yes, speaking of the Mega Bears fan fan club, we got some comments from Legalize Freedom that are just filled with praise for myself and absolutely nothing else of importance or relevance in this thread. Oh, except I guess for a couple of comments about the shift enter turn skipping functionality that we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago where uh, you can just decide not to do anything on your turn, like choosing production or science or picking great people and just holding shift and pressing enter and going to the next turn, which I personally have only ever used to get around the occasional bugs where the game tells me that there's still a unit that needs orders and there are no units that need orders. So I hit shift enter to get past that so that I can keep playing the game. But other people think that it might be a little bit exploitative because it allows them to defer taking great people, and I guess that then prevents other people from being able to take great people, so nobody ever gets any great people ever. And basically the feedback that we got was, again, from Legalized Freedom, saying that they don't think that the shift-enter functionality is a bug and that they think that it's intentional and perfectly fine, that if you choose not to build anything that you're taking the opportunity cost of not actually building something that would be giving you some benefit earlier in the game. And uh, as we've all, I think, clearly established in many, many, many years of polycast, the earlier you can do something in a Civ game, the better that will be for you. So choosing to not build a monument in order to just stockpile production for like a wonder means you have fewer turns of getting culture from the monument or whatever else it is that you decide not to build. And then there's some discussion about whether or not other people think that it might be abusive and legalized freedom ends up saying, well, if it's causing issues with great people, then they should fix those bugs and leave the shift enter turn skipping in, which I personally think would be fine. You know, I'm I'm on the fence about whether or not being able to skip your turn should be allowed. I mean, you know, Civ does come from a long tradition of board games and passing or skipping a turn is a staple of many board games. So why not put it in Civ too? As long as it's not breaking the experience for other people, you're giving up the opportunity cost. So it's not like it's free. Alcan Silver in the thread on a completely other point. And as far as moving 6 6 or games, that pricey to platforms like the iPad is uh, the limited viability of the game on it. And I had made the comment on the last episode that perhaps this is going to get people who enjoy Civilization and other turn-based or just strategy games in general to want to have that option to have on the iPad. Plus, those people who are playing games on the iPad realize that, hey, I too can play a game like Civilization VI, and it can be an enjoyable experience. So I don't know exactly what the context of the limited viability that Alan is getting to. He also adds that I played Civ 4 for 10 years and hope Civ 6 will improve, and maybe I can play it for another five years. I can foresee a time when Civ is no longer developed for the iOS, and it gets left behind as iOS updates come out, and you're no longer able to play the game anymore. I kind of read that no longer to play the game anymore as, oh gosh, Civilization isn't going to go to an online-only model, is it? That would be absolutely atrocious. But they're still supporting the Linux and the Mac ports for Civilization VI, so there doesn't seem to be any reason to me or any evidence to suggest that they're no longer going to develop it for that, particularly if publisher 2K Games, which owns the Civ franchise, is investing money in seeing this come about and trying to market it. I think they're probably in part trying to do this so we forget about certain other Civilization platform failures, like, I don't know, Civilization on Facebook, for example. 
I think what Alan is getting at is that $60 is expensive for a game on a mobile or tablet platform. And most people are used to seeing games for like 99 cents or for free. So then you're scrolling down, you see $60. What the heck is this? And that might turn a lot of people off. And I think his fear is that if people don't buy it because it's so pricey compared to other mobile and tablet games that 2K will stop supporting it because it's just not making money. And then they're not going to get expansions. They're not going to get patches. They're not going to get any more DLC, anything like that. I think that's what uh, what he's talking about. Well, I guess it is possible that we could end up with a Civilization Revolution situation where I know there was Civilization Revolution 2, but it really wasn't any new development on the game. There was very little new content as compared to the original Civ Rev for the consoles. And it was just kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Here's Civilization Revolution 2. You can play it on a different platform, but there's no new content. Do you want to pay for it again? No. I could see this being this kind of a one-off on the iPad for that reason. Poor uh, Mac and Linux players have you know, waited as long as they did for the Rise and Fall expansion pack and continue to wait with that staggering with the release schedule. I think it's fair to say that that's probably going to also happen with the iPad, particularly given that just like the Mac and the Linux ports, that's not being developed in-house as near as we can tell. I mean, Fraxis Games has never done anything on Mac and Linux and they've never done anything, say, on apparently on the Nintendo Switch either. They certainly haven't talked about that. It's a licensing deal. I hope it goes well, because unlike the console platform or Civilization Revolution, this is trying to take the PC experience and putting it in another platform. It is a big risk. There is that, you know, as you say, Jason, and we were getting at last week, that big price tag. So there's a lot of consumer education about, yeah, that's $60 up front. But if you really enjoy this game, by the way, there's a free demo. Just think about how many games you play and then how much per game that's going to cost you. But seeing as how they're really trying to introduce the iPad gamer to a game like this, it's very expensive to educate the market. And they just might end up educating the market for some other strategy games going forward. I obviously can't speak towards you know the iPad or the, the Switch versions. As I said a couple episodes prior, I do have a tablet that runs Windows that is capable of running Civ. And I take it with me on road trips and to airports and things like that. And Civ on the go in a relatively portable format is pretty awesome. And I would not be surprised if a game like this could actually thrive in that sort of environment as long as it is the fully function, robust Civ experience and not something that's simplified or dumbed down like Civ Revolution was uh, criticized for being. So I think this could potentially work really well for the game. I think a lot of people would enjoy being able to take this with them on the bus or on the train or you know on an airplane or something like that and just be able to play a few turns. Hopefully they don't end up sitting on the airplane after everyone else has unloaded, taking one more turn, <laughs> one more turn. Un- until the uh, next flight crew shows up and are like, what the heck are you still doing here? <laughs> I don't think yeah. you can underestimate the marketing potential of, of and, and the popularity of Apple. I go to our local mall just nearby here, and it doesn't matter how many people are in the mall, that Apple store is always packed. They sell a lot of iPads. Yeah, how many people are in line at the Microsoft store to get the newest version of Windows? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So <laughs> Compared to how many people are sitting the no, not now, whenever Windows Update tells you it wants to install an update. Yeah, the only thing might be that price point. Although it's a full game and massively functional, I have a Kindle, and the most expensive game I've seen on there is probably about 20 Especially considering this is a game that's been out for, oh, what, are we going on two years now? Uh-huh. Uh, Almost, yeah. I would have said somewhere <clears throat> in the 30 to $40 price range probably would have been a better move for them. 
Yeah, uh, and even then, it's just extremely pricey compared to most games for a tablet because most of those are just adaptations of a mobile game or something that's maybe right. five bucks. I like the idea of not playing Civ with a keyboard and mouse all the time, like something else to fit the contours of your hands. Like right now, I'm using a Steam controller, and I, I like that, just the movement. And uh, so something else, like a tablet, is, I think it's pretty good. I think another thing that they could have done that might have been a smart move would have been maybe releasing a version of Civ 5 on mobile platforms at a cheap price to kind of get people used to the idea of having those sorts of games on those devices. That, uh, I feel, is a little bit of a missed opportunity. Oh, speaking of perhaps a missed opportunity, JK Chart. This is um, Darker Dark Ages. So I finally got in Dark Ages, and while I am still all for the general concept, I do feel like Dark Ages should be slightly more punishing to get through. I think the loyalty system for the Ages works well enough, since I did have trouble holding a couple cities, but it feels almost too rewarding in the end, especially if you jump to a, a heroic age since it is easier to get better ages once you hit a dark age. I saw a suggestion that you should be forced to pick a dark age policy on a post, and I actually thought that would be a swell idea to make it slightly more challenging of an era instead of something that outright punishes a player severely and ruins their game. The thought I had was that a player in a dark age policy must replace one of their policies with a dark age policy, but not necessarily a wild card, which was the first idea. Rather, dark age policies could be super policies that could go in any slot. This may still be too flexible, in which case those policies could be forced into the most flexible slots, the wild cards. It would be a change that would make Dark Ages more challenging, like they're supposed to be, beyond just a loyalty effect, but wouldn't be absolutely punishing to players that get one. Thoughts? So aside from just like turning down your uh, monitor saturation to make it so dark that you play horribly... That's what happens in the game. The saturation goes down. But um, I think maybe getting more extreme Dark Age policies, just making them more extreme, like Twilight of Valor, giving it plus 10 combat strength, and then you can't heal anywhere. Or like with monasticism, have like triple science with holy sites and then negative 50, just to add some more extremes to it. But I think that some civs and some governments just benefit from having those wildcard slots available to them. So like essentially for Poland, a military slot can be a uh, Dark Age slot. So I think that's just kind of unique to them. So the idea of putting a Dark Age policy everywhere is just kind of something unique to certain civs, like America can put it in a, essentially a diplomatic slot, and Greece can put it, since they have a flat-out wildcard slot, and then certain governments like Democracy and Merchant Republic have extra wildcard slots. I do definitely agree that the uh, Dark Ages do feel a little bit tame, I mean, whenever I get them, they're usually minimally impactful on the games. It, it's pretty much as long as you aren't aggressively expanding or settling close to other players and getting lots of loyalty pressure, the Dark Ages pretty much don't do anything to you at all. And I've mostly ignored the Dark Age policies so far because in most of the situations where I'm in a Dark Age, none of them are particularly useful or at least not any more useful than the policies I already have. So I think that forcing you to have to take one might be an interesting idea that could work. Well, if if you have no use for any of them, then they shouldn't be forced. Like sometimes you don't have a trade route going on or you're not at war with anyone. So they would have to make different ones that apply to more situations. Otherwise. Yeah, they, they might need a wider variety of them if, if they were going to do something like that. But I, I do definitely agree with the idea that they probably should 
do something that makes you change the way that you're playing the game. Because right now, like I said, pretty much the only time that a Dark Age, to me, really feels impactful is if you've been conquering other players and stuff like that, where you've got cities out on a frontier that are getting a lot of loyalty pressure. And if you don't do that, if you're one of those players who builds five, six cities and then just turtles, Dark Ages, from my experience, do pretty much nothing. But I don't know, maybe that's just me. No, I I agree with you. You know, when I first read this thread, I was like, hmm, more negative effects from Dark Ages. Because right now, like you said, you know, I don't pick the extra Dark Age policies. I, I, I never do. I think once I did when I wanted to have more combat strength or something. But then when they don't heal, then that's a real pain because you have to keep bringing them back to your yeah. home territory. If, if you're if in you a ha- defensive war, Twilight Valor is excellent. And yeah. you should definitely take that. But other yeah. than that, it's kind of crap. Yeah, it's kind of like a, oh, geez, I got a dark age. Oh, loyalty pressure. Well, that's about the only thing I ever think about. It's if if you're aggressively going after somebody and you get a dark age, kind of waste those those next few turns. And it's like, ah, when does this nightmare end? OK, it's all right. I'll just build up. I, I won't do a lot of attacking right now. It's just I find them more of an inconvenience than anything else. So to actually make them more negative, that's an interesting thought. I like the idea. Think about it more. I don't even know if I'd necessarily say it's an inconvenience because a lot of times I see it as an opportunity because now you have that ability to go get a heroic age. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a good point. And I've had games, especially when I'm playing with uh, civs like the Cree or the Pucci that have a lot of early uniques, I will sometimes find myself just deliberately trying to get myself into a classical dark age so that then I can build my uniques and, you know, explore the map and kill some barbarians and stuff like that and be in a medieval heroic age and then basically be in golden ages throughout the rest of the game, especially that early in the game, the dark ages really don't do anything at all. Cause you don't even have any cities out in the frontier that are going to be getting loyalty pressure at all. Anyway, certainly is the opportunity cost of not having a, a dedication bonus to work with by getting in a classical golden age. You could be missing out on great profit points or, or something like that from one of the dedication bonuses. True, but you do need, I think, a lot of infrastructure in place in order to get the most out of those dedication bonuses. So again, Uh if you can get the Dark Ages earlier in the game, you are mitigating the opportunity cost of not having the Golden Ages because you just don't have the campuses, the theater squares or whatever up and running that the dedication bonuses give you benefits towards. A lot of the infrastructure um, gets applied to with the uh, the Dark Age policies themselves. So that just makes them even more useless. So like uh, if you don't have any holy sites in your classical, then you're not going to be able to play with that card at all. You know, we've already talked about how in some cases getting into a Dark Age can help propel you into a Heroic Age and how using certain Dark Age policies in the wildcard slot can benefit you. I think about, for example, say if you're in Oligarchy and you're already getting combat strength, you're on the offensive. There have been times where I have specifically watched, and I know I mentioned this before on the show, keep myself from going into a normal age, miss getting a point or two, delay doing something like, oh, I know I'm going to get a plus one error score when I finish this district. I'm going to delay that. I want to get into a dark age or I even want to stay in a dark age because I'm on the offensive and I want to use that Twilight Valor. I don't want that to go away, which of course seems to be the opposite notion of, wait, People are actually wanting to get into a dark age and stay in a dark age. Or, I think more generally, as we're also getting at here, an apathy for, oh, do I have anything on the border? Am I concerned about loyalty? No. 
okay, then you stop and think about it. It's it's at best psychological most of the time. It has really no gameplay effect. Yeah, even the uh, opening cinematic for Rise and Fall, uh, which was you know also in the trailer that they put out for the game for the expansion before it released, like showed the plague and stuff like that. So you know when the game was first announced, I was kind of thinking, oh, maybe they're going to finally have plagues and things like that that are actually going to reduce your population and stuff like that. Like, wow, that would be really bad. Definitely don't want that to happen. <laughs> but then the actual game comes out and it's like, what? Like, this isn't really doing much at all. Seeing as how a Dark Age is supposed to be a reflection of some kind of deterioration in your culture, your economy, in relation to other people as it's been applied in the game, what if, rather than saying you have the option of adopting a Dark Age policy, let's say that you're an oligarchy. For the duration of this Dark Age, one of your policy slots has been neutralized, similar to in a spy situation where your governor has been neutralized by somebody else. You could try to tie that to something specific that you're doing in the game or not doing in the game. Like, okay, am I going to take out an economic one? Am I going to take out a diplomatic one? Am I going to take out a wild card one? Am I going to have it be randomized? But the idea being, rather than giving you more policy choices or choosing you to force a policy card, like you were saying, Scar, you... <laughs> but someone might say, well, we're going to force you to take a policy card whether it's useful or not. Right. And therefore, that is your penalty by having to take a card that's potentially not useful to you. But it could end up being useful if you then adapt what it is that you're doing during the Dark Age to that policy. Why don't you just take something away that you... Sorry, an oligarchy, I'm sorry, uh, your military policy card is uh, no longer in effect. Oh, crap, I was using the uh, one gold per turn maintenance, and now for the duration of the Dark Age, my economy's in a little bit in the crapper, and that's reflected by the fact that we're not as efficient, and the materials are shoddy, so we're having to replace them more, and then that's reflected in the game by having to pay one more gold a turn per unit for the duration of that age. Or it could just maybe disable your government's ability for the duration of the Dark Age instead of taking away a policy slot. So if you're in oligarchy and you get a Dark Age, okay, well, no more combat bonus until you get out of that Dark Age. Well, at least with Dark Age policies, you're kind of making a deal with the devil in, in the sense that you get a penalty, but then you also get something really cool. So I think that's a strength there instead of just flat out removing a uh, slot. I think if we go historically back to what a Dark Age was, I mean, you mentioned about the plague. If there was a big indicator, a big uh, negative effect on health, like no healing or no city growth during a Dark Age, that would hurt. None of your units could heal. The other thing, too, with Dark Ages, it was named dark because there wasn't a lot of science going on. If all the campuses um, had a 50% reduction in science output or something during a Dark Age, that would definitely make it more painful. Because you're right, because it's, it's having an in-game effect, but then the in-game effect is also tied to what this is supposed to be simulating that was experienced in the quote-unquote real world and the science could definitely be that i mean you could definitely play around with the percentages or whatnot but the concept that you have an in-game effect beyond the loyalty consideration when again at best it feels like it's a non-event or quote-unquote worst of all when it's supposed to be dark when it's supposed to be a negative you actually feel like you're ahead yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I think Firaxis may have shied away from things like, you know, science penalties and stuff like that when you're a Dark Age because they didn't want to create other runaways. Because if you're in a Dark Age and another Civ is in a Golden Age, then they're getting a science boost and you're getting a science penalty. And that's something that's going to be really difficult to recover from unless the roles completely switch and you later go into a Golden Age and they fall into a Dark Age. But even then, it still might not let you catch up because they might have built all this extra infrastructure. You know, they might have gotten so far ahead 
that you can't catch up because you don't have all the snowballing infrastructure in place to catch up, even if you do get into a golden age. So I think Fraxis was probably afraid of things like that happening. Yeah, good point. Uh, If you get in a perpetual dark age, if it hurt too much, I guess. Maybe dark ages come too easily. I mean, you've already talked about how sometimes you want to have a dark age. Perhaps they shouldn't come as frequently as they do now. And when they do come, make it more painful. Yeah, because it's almost a strategy for players on the first age of the game to deliberately tank it so you can get the next age heroic. Right, especially if you have, as I said before, those ancient or classical uniques where Mm -hmm. you know you're going to be getting, what is it, it's like four era score for creating your unique for the first time, whether it's an infrastructure or unit. That's a big bonus. And if you're not hunting barbarians, assuming you're have barbarians enabled you just don't hunt the barbarians that first age and then you get your dark age and then your dark age is basically barbarian hunting season and you've uh, got yourself a heroic age the next era and then suddenly you and your unique unit are just stomping over everything right it just seems to go back to the case of getting things earlier like um one major dedication bonus earlier better than three later on I was kind of expecting that Dark Ages would be something that would have been put in place to try to slow down runaway sieves. And I don't feel like it really does that completely. It does do that in the sense that the loyalty penalty means that vast, expansive empires, you know, particularly ones that overexpanded, are going to lose some of those cities. But I don't really feel like it's the case that it's the expansion or the overexpansion that causes the Dark Age. Because in a lot of cases, the more expansive your empire is, the more opportunities for era score you have. The more land area you have, the more likely you are to have settled in the hostile locations that you get era score for. The more likely you are to have settled next to natural wonders, which gives you era score. The more cities you have, the more opportunities you have to build wonders, which gives you era score. So the era score mechanic almost rewards the large runaway civilizations and penalizes the smaller turtley civilizations because of just the larger civilizations having more opportunity to get those points. Yeah, I think it's about strategic expansion as well. Just like being able to put good cities in good spots will definitely and should increase your era score. And some cities are just better at expanding uh, like Rome and then some are just better at staying small and then still getting lots of error score. Yeah, and on that topic, one of the best things that the expansion did was making it so that you have to think about your expansion because you can't just put a city anywhere like you used to be able to. Because if you put it in a place where you are getting a lot of loyalty pressure, it could flip in a matter of like five turns, right? You don't even have enough time to build a monument or relocate a governor there to stop it from happening. It's like handing your enemies a free city, basically. Right, so that, that is a very good thing that the expansion did. I just feel like the original intent was probably to control runaways, and I don't really feel like that's what it accomplishes. I think it just makes it so the runaways have to be more careful with how they run away. Great Felons, started by God of Kings. Great Felons are the great people the player must avoid at all times. Every sieve automatically generates Great Felon points based on the total population of the sieve. The more populous the sieve, the more likely the sieve would have a Great Felon. The amount of points generated are doubled during a, wait for it, Dark Age, halved during a Golden Age, and not generated during Heroic Ages. Once a sieve has enough points to recruit a Great Felon, they will be recruited, the points are subtracted, it's automatically going to do its thing. I'm thinking, okay, maybe, and then talk about getting clubbed in the back of the head. For example, classical era great felon uh, Herodotus, or however you pronounce that, I'm just going to call him Hero because it just sounds hilarious, could show up and destroy one of your world wonders. 
Um, but he can only show up in a sieve with at least one world wonder and generated enough points to recruit him. I don't know. How about he goes in and perhaps sabotages all of your districts in a particular city, or he sabotages all of your quantity districts in all of your cities that you then have to repair, destroying one of your wonders. I could uh, see maybe that's if a little harsh. Could be, yeah, I would see if wonders could maybe be pillaged. You could do that where you could oh, then yeah, repair, you repair them. But yeah. yeah, destroyed outright. The problem with pillaging is you've got a lot of wonders that have one-time immediate effects. And then what would pillaging do for a wonder like that? So, you know, that's kind of a difficult mechanic to implement because they would basically have to make it so that every wonder provides a passive benefit that would be lost if the wonder were pillaged. I personally think it would be nice to be able to pillage wonders because that's something that happened historically. And I'm not opposed to the idea of being able to destroy wonders. Civ 3, I think, actually had a mechanic where wonders could be destroyed. And then like the ruins of the wonders turned into, I think, tourist attractions and generated some resources or whatever for the player. So I, I think something like that could maybe work in that context. But yeah, just having a random great person pop up and destroy a wonder the way the game currently works is way too harsh. And I think about a district penalty because it's not like, oh, sorry, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pillage your plantation. That's no problem. I'll just send a builder who doesn't even have to use a charge, press, repair, ding, done. It's no, it's going to take X number of turns for you to be able to repair all of these districts, either in the one city or again, you spread it out over some cities in the like in the immediate vicinity, wherever the great felon has been generated. So the point that it's a nuisance in that case, and it is going to be something that you need to try to address the only thing about the initial part of the suggestion, otherwise at that point from God of Kings, and Grey Wolf asks it in the start of the second paragraph, why is this mainly based on population size? Doesn't seem fair to players who aim for population growth and may even discourage that. I guess the notion that the more populous a sieve, the more likely there would be a great felon because there's more likely to be crime because there's more people living in close quarters and someone gives somebody a sideways glance, a nudge standing next to the wagon, and... There's this blood feud or something. <laughs> I don't know what it is that we would tie it to necessarily. I'm Actually, the first thing that I thought of uh, from the original post is instead of tying it to population size, they could probably tie it to unemployment or underemployment. If you have more citizens than tiles that are workable and you have therefore unemployment, which isn't really a mechanic so much in Civ 6 as it used to be. Because if you remember in older Civ games, you could actually not assign a citizen to work a tile and they would go into like an unemployment pool where I think they just generated one production or something like that. I think Civ 6 still technically does that because you could hypothetically have more citizens than tiles to work, but they just don't have any place on the UI that shows where an unemployed citizen would go. So you can't really see it. It doesn't really do anything, but they could add an unemployment mechanic. And then instead of the great felon points being automatic, it would just be the um, unemployed citizen would kind of act like a specialist and provide great felon points the same way that a specialist in a district does. They could also maybe tie it to underemployment. So if you have a citizen that's working an unimproved tile, then maybe that gives you half as much great felon points. Yeah, I think it's tied in a lot with amenities and the, the current loyalty system, because I would think that if uh, your city is bordering another civilization, they could be going back and forth between the other civilizations, and that could open the door for a lot of crime since you're on the border with another one. So just the whole idea of little amenities and free cities splitting off is just kind of the same thing as uh, a felony concept. It would be kind of neat if in a golden age, if there were great felons that you could pass on the, the great felon and then that would boost points to the players behind you to get more uh, felon points because that's how it works with current great people if you uh, pass on one. Or so that could be a, maybe convert them into a spy. 
right, like a great spy from Sid Four. That's kind of what I uh, thought of when they mentioned uh, Great Felon. Certainly, if you're dealing with a number of, say, unemployed citizens, because as you were saying, Jason, you have more citizens than you have hexes to work. If the civilization was particularly plentiful in its food production from just land that is being worked and buildings in the city, plus, say, internal trade routes, I mean, a lot of the effect that we see right now for having really substantial empires, say, in terms of scientific output, is you're really cramming cities together a lot. So there's not going to be really any one city that has hexes that are not touched by anybody else. So given the advantage that that is in the game right now, the likelihood that you would have unemployed citizens is increased for that reason, because eventually, hopefully, the city's going to continue to grow and be tall. And I think, as you also say, if you made that a little clearer in the UI, that, hey, you've got these unemployed citizens, if you've got something that you can then apply them to, like, I don't know, get back to running specialists, for example, that, no, your task is not to work something on the map. You have been trained and say that, you know, I can go ahead and assign you as a scientist because there happens to be a campus, and you are then, I'm not saying applying like great scientist points, but you are applying, you know, X number of beakers or percentage number of beakers, whatever it happens to be per turn for that, so then you would have to go in and make that clear that you are going to get great felon points if you don't do that, as long as, say, a player was prompted in the UI, like newer players might not know to go into the city management details and see where that is, and just be prompted, just like when you get notified, hey, your city's starving, you're going to lose a population. Hey, did you know how you, you have someone that's unemployed? And then a little text, you know, if you let them remain unemployed, then that's going to contribute towards a great felon. I think that is something that could make it interesting. Again, all just kind of comes back to as long as there's a counter to minimizing the great felon, some specific action that you are doing, a meaningful action that you are doing, and, you know, in a good amount of time, then this is something that could work. God of Kings does subsequent posts say population size would be a minor contributing factor, though lack of amenities, fooding, or housing would be major factors. That certainly would also make sense. You know, I have nowhere to live, so I guess I'm going to be going around to where other people are living and taking their stuff. And the more that I do that, and the more of us that are continuing to do that, and the longer that are doing that, is going to lead to resentment to the civilization that I'm leading in. So yeah, I'm going to stir up some trouble. Guy Forks was uh, suggested as one, and uh, Blackbeard, and and uh, was the other one, um, Lucky Luciano. Al Capone would be a good one, I think. Jesse James was mentioned. I don't think I saw Robin Hood show up anywhere. Oh, that would be good. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure of the historicity of Robin Hood, though. Ultimately, I think that uh, felony is just kind of a player choice because it kind of has that moral aspect. So there's certain cards that are kind of law bending and certainly a lot of the um, Dark Age policies uh, like robber barons. That's just very uh, a moral dilemma that the player has to make, which I think is kind of felony in itself. Drew saying past guests on Polycast asks in our chat, because we record these episodes live on YouTube, what is the great felon system even supposed to be countering? And I'm getting the sense that it's supposed to be countering like your apathy towards certain things. Oh, well, there's been a lack of amenity issue for, I don't know, 15, 20 turns. I'm not really doing anything about it. I don't particularly care about it. I'm not in war, for example, so there's not war weariness on top of it. They're upset. Big deal. Here is another reason, along with, say, you know, no longer growing as, as well as you could, for example, to 
go and do something about it to try to manage your empire a little more efficiently. So there isn't any like one of the sense that I'm getting. It's not responding to any one event. It's just a lot of internal management to your empire. Those things that you say, well, I could pay attention to this, but I don't really need to. So long as the response from the great felon would be that it is having an, a game impact, but not so substantial that it's like, hey, where did my wonder go? The subsequent suggestion that it would take him X number of turns to destroy a wonder. Uh, I guess in that particular case, if you were going to do that, then what would you be able to do in order to stop that person? And are you going to have a reasonable amount of time to actually turn around and take that action? Unlike, say, you know, when you capture a city and you've got three turns to try to do something about it to, to combat like 2025 loyalty pressure. Ugh. Yeah, another thing, too, is maybe instead of great felons, maybe have just a more dynamic or robust barbarian system where the barbarians feel more the roles of bandits and marauders and pirates and stuff like that and feel like more of an active agent in the game as opposed to just kind of this almost force of nature sort of thing. Having the barbarians be a little bit more organized could be another way that you could get some of this stuff into the game as well. Like I could imagine there being a barbarian great general or a great admiral Blackbeard. It's basically your disgruntled citizens go out and start rounding up their own army to try and come up throw you. You have a partisan problem. Yeah. I'm just going to throw something out there about what would cause these great felons to actually become in the game. But it like it would make sense when you think about it. A lot of times you get the happiness of your cities. It doesn't seem to have, in my opinion anyway, and maybe you put me down this idea, it doesn't seem to have that much of a negative effect. But if you were to have a city that's unhappy, maybe miserable, then you started having great felons arise, that would make sense. Oh, like a city that's having loyalty problems and dropping might be the one that produces the felons. Yeah, that too. Maybe a combination of both. I would think an unhappy populace would create felons and a disloyal populace would create partisans. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you could have both and split it along those lines. They could also have mechanics in place where maybe your citizens actually provide you with quests and things that they want you to do, kind of like how the city-states give you quests or how in Civ Five they had the, your cities wanted specific resources for the We Love the King Day. Have a mechanic like that, and if you consistently neglect providing the things that your citizens want, regardless of whether they necessarily have amenities from other sources, then maybe that could also be something that causes felons. So if you've got other mechanics that are tied into it, like a future expansion or something like that, I think there's a lot of things you could do with that. My big issue is I'm struggling to find out what exactly this would necessarily add to the game besides just maybe having some fun little flavor kind of things. It just doesn't seem to me to solve a major problem. It's certainly not defined as solving any problem. It's almost presented as a challenge to the player, yet... If we're going to have it challenge the player, it's like, oh, yes, Dan, you've already said this, but just to reiterate that it's meaningful, it's connected to what you're doing and you're not doing in the game, you can counter it. You know, you want it to something that's going to give you enough attention, but at the same time, this is should not be some new substantial mechanic that, again, for example, wipes out your wonder. That's a little much. Yeah, and going back into the comments from the Dark Ages earlier, uh, one of my other fears with a mechanic like this is that it might be something else that punishes players or civs who are already behind and therefore further enables runaway civs. So that would be something that I think if Firaxis were going to implement something like this, they would definitely need to make sure that it's not something that's just going to create more runaways, where you've got the civs that are already weak or falling behind that are the ones getting all these criminals that are sabotaging them without them really having much that they can do about it. 
and then the big powerful civs are just happily skipping through their golden ages and it's all sunshine and rainbows and building massive empires and not suffering at all for it. Recorded for episode 306 with Dan Q, Akalua, the Mean Team, Mega Bears Fan, and Uber Marklar. But how regions could add a lot to the Civ franchise. Supremacy King 2 started a thread that he had this idea, probably not new, where the game could automatically group hexes together to regions at the start of the game. I mean, it already does that for continents, so... Yeah, one person on the thread already pointed that out. It's basically just, you have to recurse. <laughs> Do it again. Do it again. Regions within the continents. Something big enough for about two or three cities-ish, something like that. I don't know if it'd be that big considering some of the map sizes, but... Yeah, I don't think yeah. the maps are big enough for this to really work. Again, if the maps were big enough where cities were like 10 tiles apart instead of four tiles apart, having large regions would, I think, make more sense. Yeah, on the smaller map sizes, you just have to use the continents, basically. Right. On the smaller map size, a region would be like a triangle of three tiles. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, no. <laughs> but there are some interesting ideas here about what you could do with them. Maybe you could apply this to continents as well. Is that cis could claim adjacent regions as their own before settling cities there. On a bigger map, yeah. I like that idea in general, with or without regions. Territorial claim units. Yeah. <laughs> Put a flag in it. It's part of Britain now. Man, I don't know. Don't people say civilization is Eurocentric enough? Lol. Oh, excuse me. Put oh. a flag in it. It's Australia now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you colonial conquest. <laughs> Look, if you don't have a flag, you're not really a country. At the very least, having these regions would better define what is considered, quote, near. So things like don't settle near me. I don't think the game ever defines how near. far away near is. So if near were just a region adjacent to one of your cities, then at least we'd finally have an in-game definition for what the heck that word means. Even though it doesn't matter in practice, because when you settle your second city in any direction, someone complains. But OK, sure. <laughs> As long as whatever region you are claiming as your own, as long as you have taken an action, for example, there's a strategic resource there, and to tie into a concept that we used to have, I can't even believe I'm mentioning Civilization 3, but I am. Colony? Yeah, I put a colony in here, so now I can claim this region for my own, as opposed to, hey, I just discovered this region, hey, I'm the first to discover it, hey, it's mine. Because then there's also the talk about if a civ settled in a region claimed by another civ, it could trigger a Cassius Belly. Hey, I claim that on turn four because I discovered first and you settled there. Now I get a Cassius Belly because you've actually done something. As long as it's qualified with something like that, as opposed to just go ahead and start, I claim this and I claim this and I claim that and I claim that. Because then it yeah. just sets up mine, some mine, ridiculousness mine. afterwards. Well, That's all. <laughs> mine, mine, mine. Of course, the only thing with that yeah. would be you'd have to script it so that if you didn't know somebody else claimed it because you hadn't met that Civ, how would that work? I don't know. Maybe running into terrain that another Civ has already claimed would automatically introduce you to that Civ. Yeah, because that would then they'd block out the entire region. And you're like, wait, what? Well, it'd have to be tied to well, some kind of action. And, and I was thinking that that could be maybe a very useful function for scouts and reconnaissance units to have, where the scout yeah. explores, and then it maybe has a number of charges similar to a uh, builder. And yeah, bring in the used... Beyond Earth mechanic. Yes. <laughs> was that in Beyond Earth? <laughs> well, they had charges on the exploration units for picking up those pods. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In this case, you, you have a claim limit. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's for, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had the just, same thought. They just nice. adapt the Stellaris territory or claim unit thing. There would probably have to be some kind of decay mechanic on that, so you can't just claim a space on the fourth turn of the game and then not settle it until like a hundred turns in. Oh, people can eventually just say, no, screw you, I'm settling here anyway because I don't like you. <laughs> yeah, there would either have to be a decay period where your claim is no longer valid and it literally just goes away, or a period after which point the cast of spell eyes or whatever no longer apply if players settle there. Because it's like, you didn't do anything with it, so we're settling there now. You're going to get better CVs eventually anyway. What's well, another thing on the list here that Civs could agree to give up a claim to region exchange for gold or other diplomacy things. So here, yeah, have and- this relic and can have this region. I wouldn't mind also just to extend that to actually be able to trade your territory with other civs, especially after a war, instead of having to capture their city to be able to just say like, hey, we want that tile that has that iron on it. Give us that and we'll make peace. That would be fine. If you're going to claim a territory, you need to have some kind of presence there. Now, you could have that be a colony and you could choose that colony to remain undefended by a military unit. Or it could be, I've claimed this region, I am going to have the expense to construct a unit, and it's going to stay in that territory as opposed to continue to explore. I'm going to pay the maintenance on that unit, which could then prompt someone to say, would you give up your claim to that region? I'll do that in exchange for gold. Or, okay, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to settle here anyway, even though you've claimed it, and then you can decide whether or not... Am I really going to defend my claim? If so, how am I going to defend my claim? Is it going to be outright war? Are we going to tie it back to some kind of economic sanction? I know I'm getting a little bit on a tangent here, but the important thing to me is if you're going to claim it, it's not just because I was here, I've claimed it, and by the way, if you decide that you want this, I know we just say it could trigger a Cassius Belly, so long as it doesn't automatically create a Cassius Belly for someone just because you were there first and to claim it, and then you don't do anything about it, I think you're putting too much value on a Cassus Belly. Like, in early game war, you can just declare anyway. Like, Ancient Era, you can just declare surprise war for no penalties That's other true. than the risk of losing. Maybe uh, so having like, claims could cost you, like, culture or something like that. Each claim you make costs you, like, one culture per turn or something, and that uh, maybe scales mm-hmm. up as the game goes on. So there actually is a cost to having them and not doing anything with them. And then, well, then you, you just wouldn't make them and then just piss people off settling. And sure, they get a CB on you, but who cares? They can declare on you anyway. So you just violate the claim. Screw them. I realize that, but I don't want it just it to be in the game that you go ahead and you claim it and then do nothing about it other than to say I claimed it. I don't see that, that it's anything. Well, if you do that, someone's just going to settle it. They don't care about your CB. They'll just take it then. Why not? So then what was the point of having it declared as... That, that's basically... Either players or AI. Well, both. Well, unless they had a mechanic where claiming the territory maybe seeds it with some loyalty pressure from you or something like that. So if someone settles in that claimed territory, they start with a loyalty handicap, an additional loyalty handicap, you know, on top of what else might be there based on distance from capital or something like that. Okay, then you would need to put a bit of a price tag on it. Yeah. I just think this is probably best served as an extra way to encourage early wars and not a whole lot else in practice. Because ultimately, the game's incentives are pretty clear. You want more cities, so you're going to settle them anyway. And if someone else is trying to beat you to spot you, you're probably going to wind up in conflict with them most likely anyway, even without a claim mechanic. So this is like an extra incentive thing or to encourage border conflicts over alternative things rather than anything else. 
But at least in this case, the border conflicts are an affirmative action that the players make as opposed to just being, oh, we have adjacent borders, so we hate each other, even though we're trade partners and stuff like that. Yeah, I guess. Although, I mean, at least it's like there's only one winner in the game, just pointing that out. So, well, I, that's also something that I would like to change. So, <laughs> I would like for there to be cooperative victories in the game as well. I wouldn't so. mind that either. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure exactly how they should be handled, but I, I would like it. And, you know, so having it set up so that you have to explicitly lay claim to a territory in order for there to be tensions, conflict with that territory, I, I think I'm okay with that in principle, if that's a replacement for the current our borders spark tension diplomatic modifier. But I, I think of claiming territory more as something that would be more of like a mid-game thing, kind of tying into colonization as opposed to like a right at the start of the game thing. So maybe it's something that you would have to research in the civic tree or something like that, that would be like in the medieval or Renaissance era, colonialism or something unlocks the ability to do that. And then you go and you start putting colonies around. And I mean, at that point, it might be too late because most of the map might already be colonized. But if they make the maps bigger or something like that, this might be something that maybe doesn't fit in Civ 6. Maybe it's something that would have to be in Civ 7, where they can design the whole rest of the game around something like this. But I think there's a lot of things that you can do with it that would be interesting, even if it doesn't come into play till later in the game. I was just thinking how you could tie it into the notion of loyalty, where we know right now that we got a settler unit activated. In some cases, it's, hey, did you guys know that there's a sieve down here? You haven't discovered it yet. Yeah, I see their loyalty pressure. You could claim that, even if it's not within your cultural borders, because we've seen that where you're already applying loyalty to hexes that have not been claimed. That could be the basis for, hey, I'm already applying loyalty pressure here, even if it's just one. Even if it's just it would be negative one from another sieve, you can make the claim, hey, We've settled nearby. This region is also ours. This is our border. And then if someone wanted to challenge you for that, to say, no, I would actually like to settle in that spot, maybe you would be willing to say, okay, based on that deal, the loyalty pressure isn't going to be negative for you, but you're going to have to cough up a fair bit of gold. I could see it tied into that way with loyalty, which would also emerge as the game went on and became a bigger issue later on, where now as civilizations are expanding and they're getting closer to each other, there isn't a lot of territory left to settle, but there's this mash of loyalty, and you're trying to find that spot, which would then extend your borders beyond necessarily where your culture can reach, because as we have seen, ah, from cities, mm-mm-mm. I'm sorry, do you've got coal in that fourth hex from your city? Oh, I'm so sorry, that's too bad, you can't get that unless you've got, uh, what was it, one of those early great merchants that allows you to bring that resource into your territory and into your culture. And you could use it as that way to also settle that problem and tie it in that way. I like that idea. Also because I thought of it. <laughs> well, looking at some of the other ones, and it's just... I do kind of like the ones about regions could grant cities in them special bonuses. And the example here is a region has a lot of wheat tiles could grant a food bonus to tiles in that region. It's kind of like in real life. You have like, like in the middle of the U.S. It's a bunch of plains. It's great for producing grain. But isn't that kind of already modeled by the fact that that wheat resource is there? Well, I mean, if we've already got this region to find out and it has like could be a lot of wheat tiles or a lot of rice tiles or something that those get a a little trading in wheat, something the region has a lot of wheat tiles and you're working them as well, then as like an adjacency bonus, as an example, okay, like, oh, all of those going to also give you plus one to the city that's all if the city is working all three of those wheat, then the city also gets plus one food on top of all the food that's already being generated because you're working all of them. They're improved, and they're being worked by citizens. Yeah. I don't know if that's a special bonus. That's just more of what they're already giving you, but maybe that gives you culture. Well, we've got a really extensive wheat farm. There are a lot of people in that city that are employed. That's how they make their livelihood. That's tied to other things that we do. 
our traditions, our beliefs, our values, then I could see that, like, okay, plus one culture. Yeah, because okay, you'd have a lot of coal in some place, or you have a lot of niter there or something, because it does happen sometimes the resources clump up on each other. Or luxuries, too, do that. So, you know, a little something. Because in real life, places are known for being the region of having a bunch of... Wine. Or what? alternatively, maybe the region that the resource comes from could be a modifier on it. So it'd be like maybe the difference between like Egyptian silk and like Chinese silk, right? So maybe Egypt has Egyptian silk, but they also want Chinese silk. So trading your silk with China gives you an additional bonus than if it was just, they'd be like kind of like different types of silk. So it would almost count as another luxury. Maybe it wouldn't be as strong as having a completely new luxury. The luxury gives like four amenity. So maybe you'd get like two amenity or something like that from getting a different type of silk from a different region of the world. That's like a different quality or whatever, you know, maybe something like that. Yeah, because you have that also have that in real life with uh, wines and stuff. Wines from this region, wines from that region. Right. And coffee and. Uh huh. Yeah. So there's a, there's a little something there that might be useful. Uh, see, what was the other ones? Uh, regions can be designated as demilitarized zones or granted their independence. Well, I mean, I see that if you've got one of those stringy continents at the top, it's like all Arctic and it's one region or, or a couple of regions. Yeah, you you just have fun with that. You guys have fun with that. No, nobody wants that. You know, unless the oil's up there, then everybody wants that. But, you know. Then it's suddenly not demilitarized anymore. Why is it that when I read regions could be granted their independence, I just thought of, congratulations, region, on your independence. There are no cities there. <laughs> yeah. Because probably in pre- Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> it's an interesting idea, but in practice, that's what's going to happen. We're going to give independence to the crab zones at the two poles or something like that, or an area that's like devoid of stuff that nobody wants to settle in anyway. Maybe if it creates a city-state or something, like that could work. Yeah, yeah if, you, if you make it independent. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, seven here. Regional borders will be used to create national borders when you settle a city in a region. So national borders would not expand tile by tile like they normally do. Would automatically pop to the region borders. Uh, yeah, because I really trust the stupid tile management in this damn game. Yeah, we're I think gonna expand like... to everything you don't care about. <laughs> well, it already does that. To be fair, well, that's what I mean. Until they fix that, then I don't really want anything else to do with it. <laughs> well, the one yeah. thing that, that they do point out that this would at least help solve is the whole issue where there's those annoying little gaps in between oh, your cities yeah. that an AI then comes in and settles in. So if you're claiming the entire region, then you'd be filling in those gaps more quickly or immediately. And that would be something that I think would be helpful. I, there should yeah. be something like tile acquisition should be faster for tiles that are like in the middle of your empire. I was going to say that notion of kind of filling in those gaps where it's, yeah, there's a few hexes that I just can't quite reach with any of my cities based on where I settled. It's not worth settling another city and AI goes puts a place there, that could tie back into the notion of the expanding your borders, not just being based on culture, but also being based on loyalty pressure. So if you've got those few hexes, for example, and they're surrounded by your cities, particularly as time goes on, it's more and more loyalty pressure. So therefore, your regional borders have expanded out either automatically or allow us to, in fact, say, okay, we've got some loyalty pressure right there. We don't quite have enough. I think this is potentially a bit more problematic, but for maybe those few hexes to be able to say, okay, let's buy that with 
a little bit of culture, for example, or a little bit of gold once you reach a certain threshold or a specific period of time. Obviously not infinite. It's like, hey, I'm just going to keep <laughs> buying hexes or whatever in like six, seven, eight tiles out. But I think definitely the loyalty pressure could just be doing that automatically for you as well. So then you wouldn't have to worry about the AI doing that. I mean, part of people would now say, well, the AI would be really stupid to do that with the loyalty pressure because it would just flip over to you. Yeah, but who needs that at hassle? Just don't have them do it in the first place. You block them from doing that. You have claimed this territory for yourself. And I still don't want the city there anyway, so even if it flips to me, I don't want it. The buzzing, oh, from the chat, he has said that expansion and placing cities is already pretty engaging. I am not sure this is the place to focus first. And just based on the timestamp, and we were talking about lots of different moving parts, I said, like, which place is that? Are you talking about the regions themselves or something we raised from the topic, or even our own idea or as emerged in our conversation? He's talking about the early game claiming regions. There's already a lot going on while there's still land to claim. Mid-late game has always been where the city gets less engaging, which maybe then, I think you had mentioned it, Jason, that perhaps that's when we could start claiming regions. You hit a particular era, and it's like, okay, we have a pretty good idea of where the borders are, but not exactly. None of us really want to settle in this spot, but it's kind of understood that this is an extension of that territory because it's not practical for us to settle in there. And I think part of that could begin be alleviated by the loyalty pressure itself expanding your borders in addition to cultural generation, but also the opportunity for diplomacy to go in and say, why don't we formally recognize this as the border between our sieves? And either one of us violating that is going to have negative diplomatic consequences, and or worse. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44121-288-7659. That's 44121-288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. All right, well, thank you for listening to Polycast episode, what are we, 319. I've been one of your regular host Mega Bears fan, along with Dan Q. I don't know about you, but I hope I look and feel this good at 319. Makalua. Uh, we'd better be out in space by the time I'm 319. And guest hosts Stephen, a.k.a. Warning You 2 Thanks very much for listening. And Scar. Thank you very much. Testing, testing, one, two, three. <laughs> when I'm calling you. Nice. I just got to look for my wife. Is it a new look or a familiar look? <laughs> it's a look of, what are you doing, you idiot? Well, perhaps speaking of giving us something, and something we don't necessarily want even. You talking about Mackie? 
I don't know why you came to that conclusion, but I'm not certain. This may be Steve's fifth and final appearance on the show after this call. No, no, no. It's not that bad. Well, perhaps on the topic of uh, sunshine and rainbows, what do you mean? <laughs> I don't know. I, I the, the other segues were going so well that... Uh, <laughs> you are willing to come back on podcast, aren't you? Um, yes, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this wasn't a ringing endorsement, but uh, I was going to caught you off guard for an answer. Any other questions there? No, or is that it? Jason has put in a message that uh, he needs to uh, help uh, take care of business of a uh, certain animal taking care of business. <laughs> oh, I think I think he's cut back. <laughs> he's typing, though. Oh, yeah, he's typing now. Or he... uh, Okay, there you go. Okay. All right, all right. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Outro time. Okay, sorry about that. Uh... Record date September 22nd, 2018. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth sound clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.